be to God. people of all faiths and none yearn for? Well, let me tell you a story. A group of Tibetan monks make an annual trip to Laguna Beach, California. They gather in a neighborhood, a church, and they create sand mandalas. You know what that is? A mandala? It's a spiritual or ritual symbol in Hinduism and in Buddhism, that represents the cosmos or the universe. Its common use, this Mandela, has become a generic term for any kind of diagram or chart or geometric pattern that represents the cosmos or symbolically a kind of microcosm of our own universe. This event is known as the Compassion Paintings, The intricate sand mandalas take six days to create. Visitors will come from all over the world to watch these Buddhist monks create these incredible and spectacular mandalas of sand. One visitor described the process as meticulous and seemingly back-breaking work. These monks work hours on end, only taking short breaks from their work six days straight. At the end of those six days, after all that hard work, you know what they do? They pick up these beautiful, intricate, glorious sand mandalas that they've created, and these stunning creations, they take them to the beach, and they do the unthinkable. They throw them in the water. They throw them all in the Pacific Ocean. Now, why on earth would they do something like that? You see, the Mandela, especially in the Hindu religion, is a a metaphor. It represents the things we work so hard to create in life. Even the world that we are all so busy trying to construct, we can be constructing that in our work at home, or our work in a vocation or career, our, our university training. We construct it in our politics. We construct it in our art. We construct it... Well, we heard a great testimony of someone who'd given her life to constructing her own dramatic Mandela. It's whole sum of our life's everything. That's what this represents. Throwing it into the Pacific Ocean. With excruciating detail, they created these spectacular Sam Mandelas. But why throw them in the Pacific Ocean? What was the lesson Well, it's really quite simple. It's the impermanence of life. It's the fragility of life. It's it's the impermanence of all that we do. It's called a compassion painting because it's meant to help us understand how to grieve, how to lose things. You see, in an instant, it can all be gone. That's their lesson. Now, this is a lesson that's not 
so unique to Buddhism or Hinduism. In fact, like most religions, there is something along the same line. I read in Psalms 39, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely a person goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are, ter- they are in turmoil about all their work. A person heaps up great wealth, but does not know who will gather it. You see, the Buddhists who take their faith seriously anticipate a time when the souls of those who die will lose their identity and merge with the oneness of the universe. That is, they believe that that our losses don't have to have the last word. They trust that in the face of loss there will be more sand. There will be other opportunities to create more mandalas. But then it stops there. Here we see a longing that is common to every human intuition of all peoples, of all faiths, and none. We share in common. There's so much we can learn from the Buddhist and the Hindu and the, all the other religions of the world, and that there is a common revelation that we affirm and we can learn from one another, and I have learned from them this day, and I hope that you have as well. But is that it? This is where common knowledge ends, it seems. And a kind of special and supernatural desire, hunger for another kind of knowledge enters. For Christians, this is where the hope is focused. It's after that common knowledge. It's encapsulated in the ancient creed, of course, I believe in Jesus Christ, dot, 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 born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. And yes, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. How then does this historical fact of a bodily resurrection benefit us? It is a fact, we believe. It's attested to by over 400 people who spoke with him and ate with him. People who would have known it was a lie and that most of them lived during the publishing of the New Testament. It's testified to by the very fact that this was a nothing, an insignificant little band of Jews, weak and feeble before, but after it became a transcultural movement that could never stop. People who were cowards became courageous. Most would be willing to die. They would have known. They would have known that they were dying for a lie. But they had met him. They had encountered him. They had seen him, the resurrection from the dead, bodily, walking this earth. And it changed everything. How then does the historical fact of Christ's bodily resurrection benefit us? What human yearnings, yearnings common to all people of all faiths and none, are satisfied only by this resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is what I hope to to cover today. And to help us do that, I'm going to go back to another ancient creed, one that was written in 1537 by John Calvin. He wrote it for young converts. 
And this creed, this catechism, I think, is written for us today. And so would you join me as we consider uh, the resurrection and, and its benefits and how it really does change everything. Or this is what Paul referenced when he said, this is the prize. This is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. This is what Paul meant when he said that if the resurrection is not true, then everything we preach is in vain. Really, it's that big a deal. Let's pray. And so God, come. I know many of us come in many various contexts of our lives, and we just need to know that you're present and that you want to speak to us. Speak into the heart, speak into the mind, speak into our circumstances, Lord. Only you know how to do that. We pray now that your word will become alive in this place by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Well, you heard that passage. It's an interesting passage, but I want you to hear especially the thesis clause, if you will. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, underline, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection, and underline again, in a resurrection, quote, like his. That is crazy significant. You see, his thesis, if you will, is that may be united to Christ. We are therefore united in his death, and in his resurrection, and most especially, which is going to direct us into how we interpret the meaning of this, it's meant to be interpreted in a death like his, i.e. the meaning of his death is the meaning that we share in. The meaning and significance of his resurrection is the meaning and significance of of what we can share in, in our resurrection, those who are united to Christ by faith. And so then you ask, well, what is that? And the review of that thesis in verse 5 would then want us to read verses 6 through 11, which you heard read earlier. And it suggests three things specifically. And these three things became the scriptural basis for John Calvin's short little catechism. Let me read it. Catechism 74. Three ways. In what ways does the resurrection of Christ benefit us? Answer, first, by its righteousness was, fulfilled, was fully accepted for us. Let me just read that again. For, first, by it righteousness, by the resurrection, righteousness was fully acquired for us. Paul says it this way, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. What does that mean? That is the assurance of God's acceptance, or we call it justification. But it's surprising a little bit that it's related here to the resurrection, not just the cross. Secondly, it is also a sure pledge, we're told, to us that we also shall rise again one day in immortal glory. This, of course, is united to Christ and sharing an eternal life. But what kind of eternal life? That's crucial. And the answer is it's an eternal life that's resurrected. That means 
a bodily, physical, material resurrection. Notice how he says it in verse 8 of Romans. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And then thirdly, not only are we promised assurance of God's favor, never again having to doubt whether he is for us, while we will be assured of having eternal life, not in the stratosphere of, of, in, of some kind of immaterial reality, not in some other form of other being that's tied to the, the, the divinity of the cosmos, but in our own self-same body. Thirdly, then, if we truly participate in this resurrection, even now, even now we are raised in newness of life, a kind of life, in other words, that's new. To serve God and to live a holy life according to his pleasure. It's almost as if in the testimony you heard today, while we heard of her assurance, while we heard, we didn't hear yet of her hope for the resurrection from the dead, but I'm assured that Jessica has that. But we also powerfully heard a new resurrected life that she ultimately encountered and given the power to be set free from the enslavement to her idle ambition. That's powerful stuff. That is to say that this life does matter in the life that is to come, even as how we live our life now can begin to share in what is her ultimate destiny. In the words of Paul, again, verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives now to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Those are the three ways in which Paul wants us to understand the benefit of the resurrection. Now let me just dig a little deeper into each three. First of all, let's talk about this. By it, righteousness was fully acquired to us. You see, it's interesting that, that so often when we think of the resurrection, we want so desperately to make it about something that seems relevant to us. And those of us who, and depending on where we are most invested, we will often attach the resurrection to that. Thus, we have a politicized resurrection. You know, Jesus is a victim on a cross, a recipient of injustice, etc., etc. And it's true. He was a victim. He was on the cross, subject to injustice. But in a vague sort of way, we begin to empower our own victimization kind of worldview. For those of us who feel as victims, we get some kind of confidence and get some kind of pride in that. Now again, there's a way to interpret our suffering through the cross. We should do that. I'll get to that later. But that's to miss the point here. You see, the first thing you have to understand about what Paul just said here is that Jesus ultimately was not the victim. You could say sin was. Jesus was there voluntarily. He chose to do this. He makes that very clear in the scriptures. Jesus was there to accomplish something. And it wasn't just to give me 
a better, more powerful effect in my work. Or whatever you might describe it as. There really was something happening here related to, ultimately, God. You see, now this is going to be hard to hear. If I were to ask you, what is our greatest problem? What is the greatest hurdle we have to experiencing the fullness of abundant life, both here and in the life to come? What would you say? Well, throughout the scripture, it starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelations. There's a story. At the heart and soul of all of our problems is God is mad. I can't believe I just said that publicly. We call that the wrath of God. Now, is he justifiably mad? Well, see, what, what happened there was we, those created of God, rejected him. And when we rejected him, we rejected his life, his gifts, his grace. We took it upon ourselves to trust in our own ingenuity. We're told this about the, the, the endeavor there at the Tower of Babel. And, and humanity began to trust in itself, to gain for itself the life that only can come from life itself. I mean, ontological life. I mean, life with a capital L life, the source of life. If there is a God, then life is sourced from that God. There is no life apart from that God. He, in the words of Aristotle, is the unmoved mover. The, the one who moves all things that himself is not moved because in him is life and life eternal. To offend that God by saying, you, is to offend him. Now, m- anger might be a bad word in our English vernacular. Maybe a better word would be offense. We even see that word show up as jealous in a way that's Noble jealousy, a yearning for intimacy with his people and a people who've rejected that intimacy. We see that in the paradigm throughout the Old New Testament where where we are compared to, to God as a wife to a husband and a wife who has gone astray. There's see, the heart of our problem is justice, is fairness. God's fairness and justice. So maybe it's this justice that we're looking for, but how do we satisfy justice without ourselves being judged? That's the problem. And that turns us then to this incredible event of the resurrection. Though few would put it this way, it is easy, you see, for Christians to think the cross is where love overcame holiness, or a place where God saved us because he loves us so much, he just decided to look past our sins. God is love, and he loves to forgive our sins, so the cliche goes. Now, hang on to me. I'm really playing with you here. I know. I mean, this is getting really close to maybe even heresy. I don't know. So listen carefully. See, that's not exactly how this justice works, this justification, we call it. We are not justified because God's mercy triumphed 
over God's justice. As if God's feelings never mattered. As if our sin never mattered. As if the offense that we gave to him never mattered. As, as if he's just going to for a moment not be fair and give us what is due. Because it's absolutely fair that to reject the source of life is to die. It's absolutely fair. To reject the Lord of the creation is to reject the very order of life itself that brings forth prosperity and happiness. We are justified, you see, this word justified, made fairly judged as right with God, if I could put that definition on that big word justified. We are justified because in divine mercy, God sent his son to the cross as both God and man to satisfy the judgment that was on us, which was death. Mercy triumphs over judgment, but it does not remove the need for justice. It doesn't remove the need to satisfy a God who is a person God, who is offended. So Paul sets forth this incredible argument. He makes it in two points, as I've read. The first is that the resurrection is a loud declaration that there is nothing left to pay. Lest we think, however, that the resurrection Jesus revealed that God was more powerful than death, which he is, but that's still not quite the point. You see, the devil, or there is another reason. What we see here is that the grave could not hold the Son of Man. Why? The grave, death, could not hold him. Why? Because it had no claim on him. He never once rejected God. He never once failed to love the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. Never once. Imagine that. He satisfied everything that the humanity of God was meant for. And it's love for a father. The grave couldn't hold him because it would have been unjust. And yet he suffered justice anyway. And there's the magic. One who is both God and man is uniquely suited to be a mediator between God and man. And this God-man suffered the human side of justice even as he satisfied the divine side of justice. Isn't that powerful? Our justification is not an act of legal fiction then. It is an act of history. It is an act of God turning not a blind eye or God just giving in to we are all sinners, you know. Rather, this this event is an act of justice. God would have been unjust if he had, did not pardon those who belong to Christ because Christ satisfied justice for us, one who is on no need of being judged. Wow. You see, justice is the key to the cross and the resurrection. Justice. But not a justice like that any of us could ever suffer. So that's my first point. As you think about the resurrection, 
And as you think about its relationship to our being justified, we must never equate what happened to Christ on the cross with what happens to any one of us. For not one of us suffer harm as those who are perfectly righteous. Not one of us suffers injustice that while we might not deserve the specific form of justice, we aren't in the greater sense worthy of judgment. Now, you can just pretend this isn't true. I would, I would beg you to find another reason for all the world's problems that is more comprehensive, that is more universal, that makes more sense. I'm thinking right now, and I can't remember this name, but it was a Hindu convert. And he said it was, it was the Christian doctrine of sin, original sin, that finally led him to Jesus Christ. Because in this incredible doctrine of original sin, by original sin, what we mean is, as a church is we mean not the sins that we do, but what's underneath all those sins, which is ultimately rejecting God. And when, when you believe, if you believe in this world, if you believe that the world is created by a God, and that God, by virtue of creation in his image, is personal God, then you would understand what this Hindu convert understood. That it makes sense of the whole world. That something has gone horribly wrong. Those once made in the image of God so beautiful you'd be tempted to worship us had rejected the very source of that image and the world is stained and polluted by that. The problem is to, we need to be restored to God. And the problem with being restored to God is God's justice must be satisfied. And the problem with God's justice being satisfied is that not one of us could stand. Not one of us could pass through it and live. The resurrection declared that Jesus both the justified and the justifier lives. And by faith in Jesus Christ, so can we. And what does that mean for you? Oh, man, it means everything. It means that when you get in a car wreck, you're not afraid that that car wreck happened because God's mad at you. It means because when you've had a bad day, you're not thinking like karma saying, oh, what did I do bad today? Because that must have been coming back to me today. No, you're going to believe that there is a God who, like your father, loves you and loves you unconditionally in Christ. And you're going to believe that, that I have his favor now and that he will carefully orchestrate everything that happens in my life. And there'll be some suffering, as we'll see, that will take us to the cross ourselves, that we might die to certain things, but they're only things that he knows would destroy us, and that's why he has us suffer, like a good coach preparing us for a great race. It means everything to have assurance. And I want to ask you right now, do you have that assurance? If I were to ask you privately over a beer or whatever you like to drink and say, really, do you have the assurance that God is for you, that God loves you, 
that there's no fear of condemnation anymore, that you don't have to justify yourself anymore to God or anybody else, that you are not judged by God? Can you say that? Because you should be able to say that. You can be able to say that. If you believe in Jesus Christ and put your faith not in your own justifying acts, but in him. That's the way, number one, that the resurrection benefits us. It gives us assurance. Number two, what is it? Is it it's, I'll read it again. Secondly, it is also a sure pledge to us that we shall rise again one day in immortal glory. Now here again, I want you to look. We've just looked at how it is that we died a death like his, as in we are justified even as he justified us in his death, vindicated by the resurrection. Now, what would it mean to be raised in a life like his? What is the sure pledge of this historical fact that he was risen from the dead? How does it benefit us? Well, look at this. Think about it. He is raised immortal. He is raised bodily. And he is raised to return to earth. Three things like him are alluded to in this passage, fleshed out elsewhere by Paul. We are raised immortal. Have you ever noticed, if you've read the Gospel of John, just how frequently eternal life, the word eternal life shows up? This isn't just myth. This is the Gospel. This is the point. Again, we live in an age that wants to... It's, it's sad sometimes that we, we treat as irrelevant the most relevant thing that we have to offer as a church to the world. That's eternal life. That whoever believes in him, you know the phrase perhaps from just culture, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the hope, it's the dream, it's the yearning of every faith and none. Somehow, intuitively, we know it's just not right. I've never done a funeral where I haven't said something's wrong here. We know it in our heart. We know it in our gut. We were not meant for this. Separation from love. No way. We know it. I don't need to tell you this. It's just not right. But it's fair, as we've just talked about. It's what we get if we reject God, and it's what is now given by uniting ourselves back to God through Jesus Christ. Immortal. Really immortal. Just let that seep a little bit. That you really could never die. And you say, well, it's just too good to be true, Pastor. I mean, come on, isn't that just fairy tale? Well, yeah, it is if there is no bodily resurrection. Fact. History. Yes, it is. It's myth. But it's not if Christ is raised from the dead, and he has. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul could say now. It changed everything about dying. Bodily. It's not, and people in this church have heard me say this a billion times, but I confess that, that growing up when my mom or someone would tell me that 
I could have eternal life, you know, and I was going to, my spirit was going to go and be with the Lord. I can't tell you how many times privately I said, God, I don't want to go to heaven. I mean, that just doesn't sound very good at all. I like smell. I like taste. I like feel. I like the smell of green grass like I had yesterday. I love the smell of roses. Oh, come on, man. I do not want to be a ghost. Does anybody here want to be a ghost? Maybe to spy on a few folks, I wouldn't mind, but that's about it. I mean, why haven't we asked harder questions of Christianity? Why do we take all this stuff? This is garbage. This is cartoon Christianity. There's a real substance here. Bodily resurrection. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's the first fruit of those who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. He talks later in 2 Corinthians about how we have, we know that our earthly house, this tent, our body, is being destroyed. Now, I'm, I'm 58 years old. I can attest to the fact for some of you that it really is getting destroyed. My taste ain't no, not nearly as good. My eyesights are practically gone. And on it goes. I know exactly what Paul's talking about, about this earthly house, this tent that is being destroyed. But then he goes on to say this. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, before you think the heavens are ghostly, read on. For we who are in the tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed or untented, but further tented or clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. You see, the scriptures teach that we are going to receive the self-same, I'm using old ancient language here, the self-same body. Now, before you go, oh, gross, it's going to be a body that's totally restored to its perfect essence of what it should be. And only God knows that for each of you individually. But it is a body. Just like Christ had a body, he needed an earth to walk on. I don't know, I guess you could have given them rings too and they could fly, but no, it's a body and a body needs an earth. A body needs water, it needs food, it needs all kinds of stuff. Good stuff, stuff I like to eat and drink, don't you? And that's what we are looking forward to, eternal life with a body. A body that needs an earth. And that's why throughout the scripture, over and over and over again, it is reiterated that Christ will come again bodily. I don't know if you've read Revelations recently, but it's an amazing picture. It's a picture not of the heavens and the earth remaining separated, but rather it's the picture of the heavens finally coming down and imposing itself 
into, in, with, through, I don't know how to say it, on earth. Go look at it. It's the city of God come to earth is the last event of history. And earth is the city of God. The whole earth is his temple place. That's what you see. It's Eden that once foreshadowing temple of heaven, now becoming the fulfilled temple of heaven. Eden on earth. That's where we are. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. You know, there's two word, Greek words for new, neos and kainos. One means something that, that, is, that is created out of nothing new, like new wine that's created from stuff, you know. The other is restored, re- revived, regenerated. That's the word that's used when it says there will be a new heaven and new earth. It's a revived, restored, glorious earth. Earth. I, I need to press this home a little bit. The author, Os Guinness, tells the hauntingly sad story about the beloved 19th century Japanese Haku Buddhist poet known as Isa. When he was a young child, his mother died, the first of many tragedies in his life. Many years and many sorrows later, including the death of his daughter, Isis, Isa went to Zen master Versalus. The master reminded Isa what Zen Buddhism teaches, that the world is an illusion. Like the morning dew, our lives will evaporate with a rising sun. Hmm. Although Isa remained committed to his Buddhism and his Buddhist worldview, he still yearned for more, for more existence. So when he returned home that day, he penned now a very famous poem. The world is due, the world is due. And yet, and yet, oh, that is a pregnant and yet. You see, Oskina's comments about this poem, here is a truth that should make us stand still in our tracks. But it is expressed in such distilled beauty that the fragrance of its pathos becomes such a jewel of poetry that its lesson is easily lost. Isa, the orthodox Zen believer, must say that life is only due, but Isa, the father, the husband, the human being, with his agonizing grief and tortured love, can only cry into the unfulfilled darkness where Zen shed no light. And yet, and yet, he feels the inescapable tension between the logic of what he believes and the logic of of who he is. Think about that. There's so many ways that I know you've been in touch with what we're talking about here. I was in a great park in Utah this summer with my daughter and wife, you know, those beautiful, glorious southern, uh, you know, parks, national parks. And my daughter and I were sitting there, and I think, Lisa, you were there too, I can't remember, but I remember she said, you know, I i, I got to come back to this place. Now, some of you have no clue what that effect had upon me, and some of you have a very clear clue of what that effect was upon me. Her life is all before her, at least so she presumes. 
there's plenty of time. I remember turning to him and said, I'll never see this again. I'll never see it again. I mean, it, it really made me cry. And then she says, but you believe in the resurrection. And that made me laugh. <laughs> because really, Utah's going to be there, and it's not going to have all those dusty paths that everybody's worn up to. It's going to be all back to beauty. You know, the other day, I was in Atlanta, as some of you know, and I went to visit my brother, who lives up at a family lake house. And I went down just to be by myself a little bit, down to the dock that I grew up jumping off of. And, you know, for various things, it just dawned upon me, I, I will never experience that life again. It's a world gone. It's done. You know, that world that, that I so cherish, you know, swimming with my grandmother. I just, I literally could see all the people of my family who've now passed. And that deep, deep sense of sunken yuck started to fill me. This lake will never be the same. But then there's the resurrection. The lake will have more water then, too, because it was practically dry. On and on it goes. I want you to fill that in. Are you sitting there today, honestly, are you sitting there today willing to say and feel all right about it? I will never see X again. I will never be able to go there again. Or maybe it's just all that bucket list that we tend to get all weird about. And the realization that oftentimes the bucket list challenges other more purposeful priorities. And so one at a time, as you live your life, you begin to make choices. And sometimes you choose the bucket list, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong. Sometimes you can't. And you begin to realize that the bucket list is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I think I've got mine reduced to about three right now. It was about 50. But you just keep reducing it. Now, are you going to tell me that it make you sad? It makes me sad. I love this life. I love this world. I'm telling you, this is the prize, people. I mean, Christianity and everything else that it's used for ain't nothing compared to this. This is important. And it's worth putting everything a second. Paul makes that point. He's willing to make everything else second in order to make the gospel first in his relations with people and his relations to life. And that's exactly what then we see in this last third, and I'm going to do this one very briefly, that if we truly participate in his resurrection, even now we are raised in newness of life to serve God and to live a holy life according to his pleasure. What this means is that a couple of things. If you have been justified by grace through faith alone, you know you're right with God, and you can do that. And number two, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that you now have true hope of a bodily eternity life on earth again then it's going to change everything about your life it really will would you dare to let it change you a new perspective that I may know him 
Paul says, the power of the resurrection and may share in his sufferings even, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear what he's saying? If I believe in the resurrection, it changes all my suffering. Suffering becomes actually a vehicle, a means wherein I can further die to sins and idols and things that I, I, I trust in falsely that are my own destruction. I, suffering has a way of cauterizing those things. We heard that very well in our testimony today. Suffering interpreted through the cross of Christ brings me now to this resurrection hope. And I have a total new perspective about life and about suffering. It's really powerful that way. It transforms the way we see the world. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, says John. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God, for we are dead, and your life is hid with Christ our God. You know, things that make us anxious at night aren't quite so anxiousable. Can I say that? It's amazing how the resurrection changes things. Really? I'm worried about this little job? I got eternal life, man. It's coming. I'll never forget the, the week I was getting married. I was at McDonald's pulling out with my big old clunking car. And I was just in a big happy mood that whole week. A little bit haphazard, I'm sure. And I just plugged right into somebody. And I walked out of the car, and the lady said, you just plugged right into me. And I said, I know, I'm sorry, I'm getting married this week. I'm kind of (laughs) happy. Didn't matter a bit. I mean, look, that happened. Lisa and I actually got in trouble, too, on the way to our honeymoon. Not once, not twice, but three times. I'm not lying. We bumped into a car running out of 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 the church, and we had not one, but two flat tires on the way to Charleston, South Carolina. Didn't matter. Honeymoon's coming. You know what I'm saying? That's the resurrection. Really, it is. It really is true. It transforms the way we see the world. It transforms the way we see wisdom. You know, there is a kind of wisdom of this world. It's a wisdom that is obsessed and concerned for temporal things. Prestige. More of it. Wisdom that will get you more prestige. Wisdom that will get you more power. Whether it be academic, whether it be political, whether it be social power. It's the politicization, the socialization, the acclimatization of, of, of Christianity that we're just, uh, just constantly in, invaded with. Because we've secularized Christianity, if, you could, if that makes sense. It, it's kind of crazy, but we have. We've secularized it. The big prize is the resurrection. And now wisdom gets reframed in a manner that has as its goal to share and to experience the resurrection. The wisdom you listen to becomes Holy Scripture because you know it's written by a God who's eternal and not temporal. It changes the book you read the most. Because those who've experienced the resurrection and know about it will read the Bible more than any other book. Or at least try to. I confess I don't. But I'm trying. 
sometimes. And I have a job that helps me do it, so I know you're struggling. But we would do that. I've got to stop. Do you have faith? Well, there is evidence for the resurrection. You can go and read about it. But you know, you're not going to have faith unless you ask for it. You've got to ask for it. God is not a pawn or a, genie, a magic genie. The way back to God is to turn away from self-reliance, putting ourselves at his mercy and saying, God, give me the heart that is open to this faith. That's where it's going to start. Because you know, we will not have faith in what we don't want to have faith in. God's got to change. The first resurrection event that's going to have to happen in your life is what we call new birth. New perspective, new heart, a new nature. And so I want to ask us as we prepare to come to the table to ask God for faith. Every one of us, ask God. God, give me faith. And then faith is applied to this in my life right now. Faith applied to my receiving Christ. Let's pray.